What's up, guys, gals, and non-binary pals? Welcome to another episode of Required Reading, the show where we take pro wrestling and film and put them in conversation with one another. Or as I always like to say, uh, my good friend Hollis and I put our unfinished English degrees to use in some form. <laughs> yeah, this um, is for this is for a real loose definition of the word use. Exactly. Exactly. It is. <laughs> It is a use in 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 some yeah. fashion, and that's no, all that no matters. Argue, no argument there. No argument there. <laughs> of course, that voice you hear is my uh, very close friend and uh, collaborator, Hollis. How are you doing today, Hollis? I, you know, I um, I I, I was so um, I I was so glad that I held off on watching uh, on watching the movie we were going to talk about today uh, because it was. Um, it was it was definitely what I needed as a pick me up uh, after after the last couple of weeks. Yeah, it's been it's it's been a, a period for sure. <laughs> um, yeah. Obviously, just both for us, both of us personally, I feel like you know, just I don't know, the grind can be hard at times. It can, it can. but also just like for the community, it's it's you know. Um, this is uh the, you know the second show that we're doing that is uh you know in memorial so uh it's mm-hmm. it's you know it's 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 important to remember that it's it's kind of rough out there for everyone right now yeah yeah it definitely is of course last month we we paid tribute to Terry Funk um with the the match uh his first retirement match as well as uh just having some dessert with some uh good old Roundhouse kicks and uh, uh, with Roadhouse, and oh, yeah. <laughs> and this month we are um, gonna do the same for one uh, Bray Wyatt. Um, obviously, you know he and and Terry kind of passed. Uh... Oh man! Of course, he yeah. and, and Terry passed. Uh, very close together last month and um it was a, a extreme loss for for the pro wrestling community just the same as, as with Terry you know not just because of what Bray represented to the current generation for for pro wrestling but also the the promise that he had shown and his seemingly lack of fear for just doing anything and everything that he found intriguing or interesting um with within like the character work of the various iterations of Bray Wyatt mm-hmm. um you know i think we we talked a little bit about this um at the beginning of the Terry Funk episode just touching on on Bray for a second and and you know I know you've been out of the loop on on pro wrestling for a while now at this point, Hollis. But I'm I'm curious to ask you before I kind of delve into more about about Bray and we talk about the match that we're going to watch today as well as the movie. Um, what were like? What was your knowledge of of Bray? Well, my my. The first time I remember hearing Bray Wyatt's voice, it was actually in relation to uh, work done by a creator named uh, Spoonie, who 
you know I have a, a deep and uh, abiding love for the Spoonie one. Um, who, if you don't know, was a uh, was an early YouTube con uh, content creator and um, uh, a big wrestling fan himself. And I, I had gotten sort of out of um, the out of, out of out of wrestling culture by then. But you know what I had, um, uh, Bray Wyatt's um, uh, gimmicks were were referenced in some of Spoonie's videos and. Uh, uh, Spoonie seemed to speak highly of Bray Wyatt in his um, his Wrestle Wrestle podcast. Um, so I was I was interested, and I you know, I ended up looking him up and and looking up some uh, some some YouTube clips and thinking that it was um, it it was a a a hillbilly Rob Zombie hellbelly deluxe version of uh, of Raven's old gimmick from the nineties. Uh, but like better and like more inspired by the hills have eyes and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, and uh, that was that was about all I really knew about uh, Bray Wyatt until like some friends began talking about like a a new a, 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 like a sort of new gimmick he was doing a few years ago, and it turns out that that gimmick was uh, the Fiend, um which we're going to be talking about today. Yes, we are definitely going to be talking about The Fiend today uh, because the match that we are going to watch features almost every iteration of Bray Wyatt uh, in some form or fashion on it. Um, of course, you know, I talked about this on, on LGBT in the Ring, but the match we're watching is the, the Firefly Funhouse match from WrestleMania 36 back in 2020. Um, with Bray Wyatt taking on John Cena, um, which the reason why I think I picked this match because there's a, there's a number of matches I think you could have picked for this. You know, whether it be I think in terms of just like the pure like in ring stuff, one of the matches the match that most people go to as one of their all time favorites with Bray is uh, there was a six person tag team match um, between the Wyatt family, which was you know. Bray's uh, stable when he first came into the the main roster on, on WWE in 2013, uh, taking on the Shield, which was made up of uh, Roman Reigns, Seth Rollins, and uh, Dean Ambrose, now known in AEW as John Moxley. Um, and I will admit, like that match is outstanding. Like I I, I love that match as well. Um, but I feel like it doesn't fully encapsulate everything that Bray Wyatt brought to the pro wrestling world, because yes, like there is a there's a different kind of physicality to him, and a different kind of like character work in the ring too, at times with him. You know, we could have talked about the the Mountain Dew pitch pitch black match because like even though that thing is goofy as fuck, it is still one of those things that only Bray could have pulled off. And I think that is very exemplar exemplary for him. You um, told me about the Mountain Dew pitch black match. <laughs> and like later that night after you told me about it, I was like, I don't know if I believe Wonder Boy about this. And I, I looked up just some like minor small clips from it where I could find it and I was just like, oh my God, it's true. Everything I, I was told was true. I why would I lead you astray, Hollis? <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. But after after what I have watched, I'm sure it would have something to do with a woman called Abigail. Like... Yes. 
but but the Firefly Funhouse match encapsulates, I think, as close as you can get to everything that Bray Wyatt brings to the world of pro wrestling or brought to the world of pro wrestling during his time in it. Um, You know, the creativity, the off the wall nature of it, the, the physicality is still there. The various, the, the, the like flowing between different character works, the, 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 the thematic elements to it, the symbolism within it, you know, like it, like it, this is around the time when like the cinematic match was a term that was getting coined because of, you know, the COVID pandemic shutting down everything like this WrestleMania is the one that happens in front of no audience at all. Um, And like, this was one of two cinematic style matches that they did at this, at this WrestleMania, Um, which both I think were, were great, but this one stands out as something completely different than what you would see on a pro wrestling presentation as on a whole, honestly. Mm -hmm. The, uh, you know, I had no idea uh, what to expect. Um, I really like when, when you told me about it was the first time I had heard the term cinematic match. And uh, there was a, uh, as as you uh, heard in the during the the call where we watched it, a lot of uh, a lot of incredulity on my part. Just uh, <laughs> like uh, like just uh, I believe the term this is more puppets than I was expecting came up more than once. <laughs> <laughs> How many puppets were you expecting? I, less than the number I received. Like I, I, I am comfortable saying that. The um, like it was it was greater than one, but less than what I got. <laughs> <laughs> the um, and I, but I, I certainly at no point wasn't fascinated. Um, and given that that this uh, this you know, the Firefly Funhouse match asks you to you know, suspend a lot of disbelief and, like, take a lot of things as rote to, like, get into it and enjoy it. It's a big ask, but it... I I feel it delivers. I really do. After, like, after really stewing on it and, uh, you know, digesting it after watching it, and we spent a long time discussing the this sort of continuity of the, the two big performers in this uh, afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, just like any, you know, just like any work we cover, I have some notes, you know, there's always, you know, something that maybe clunks or clanks, but I, you know, even, you know, going on a week afterwards, this thing is still on my mind, which I think speaks, I think is a, is a fine testament to the, to the work that's being done in it. I really do. No, I mean, it, I am right there with you because this thing's still on my mind three years after I first watched it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like so there you go. <laughs> it sticks with you. It sticks with you because of how different it is, and yet it still accomplishes like what you want out of a pro wrestling presentation in a way. It very much. You know? 
It very much does. I, I know I, I I have to I have to agree just to hop in here for a second. It's it's amazing how how different this you know quote unquote match feels from a traditional wrestling match, but it's also deeply impressive just how much it feels like the same the same themes are being are being examined during the Firefly Funhouse match that you would sort of expect to see shades of in any of like the biggest matches of the past 30, 35 years. Yes. And I think a lot of that speaks to the connection between the two performers that we have here. I would, I would agree. I would agree. We will, we will spare our dear, dear listeners uh, the entire rigmarole of it. But suffice to say that uh, you kind of ended up taking me to school on just on all the connective tissue between these two performers and really between the between them in the last 20 years of wrestling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot to unpack in all of this. Like, <laughs> I feel yeah, like absolutely. that's just now what is commonplace for the matches that we that i picked for this show honestly <laughs> uh, uh, yeah honestly the the sub name of this podcast could be there's a lot to unpack here yes 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 um but obviously the the main connection here we have is bray wyatt and john cena wrestled at wrestlemania 36 years previous to this mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this was at a time where bray you know was still new fairly new on the main roster it was his first WrestleMania. He had he was becoming a not becoming already was a immense crowd favorite. You know him and his stablemates Luke Harper um, and and Eric Rowan. And you know he walked into WrestleMania 30 and was and was going to be taking on John Cena, and it was all built around this idea of Bray like kind of making Cena kind of turn inward and face himself in a way right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know this moment was kind of I think for a lot of fans saw this as a big coming out moment for Bray because you know he's the new hot star on the rise and of course you know Cena is the tried and true like face of the brand Um, and if Bray beats Cena that just keeps building him up further and further, you know? Sure, and of course sure. at WrestleMania 30, Bray loses. Right. Um, And over the course of the next six years, like that rivalry continued for a little bit after WrestleMania that year. But over the course of the next six years, we see Bray sort of like go through various transformations, whether it be, you know, him, you know, turning into um, a little bit of a different turn on that um, Bayou, uh, that Bayou cult leader (laughs) character, whenever he teams with Matt Hardy um, for, for a little while or. um, No, was this, was this Matt Hardy or was this broken Matt Hardy? It was broken Matt Hardy. Okay. Or a version of broken Matt. I don't think they actually called him broken Matt Hardy in WWE. Um, I think they called him like w- Awoken or something like that. I can't remember exactly, but it basically it was Broken Matt Hardy. It was Bray Wyatt and Broken Matt Hardy were tag team champions for a little while. Um, 
And then we saw a further iteration, um, whatever Bray started doing the Firefly Funhouse stuff and started teasing this idea of The Fiend. And ultimately, we did have the debut of The Fiend back in 2019. Um, and this all keeps rolling, rolling forward until we get to WrestleMania in 2020, where Bray has a chance to avenge what he couldn't do at WrestleMania 30. He has a chance to fulfill the prophecy given to him by Sister Abigail. Sister Abigail told him that he was going to defeat Cena that day. Obviously, the prophecy didn't come true. So mm-hmm. now another chance to fulfill the prophecy has arisen. And it's it's an, and it's a different Bray that might be able to do it. Like, what did Bray have to put himself through? How far did he have to break and reform himself to be able to accomplish what Sister Abigail had told him he was going to do? You know, mm-hmm. and all this kind of at the same time where John Cena, you know, being the stalwart, being the the, you know, the known quantity that he is, you know, hadn't really been in WWE full time for for a bit at this point. You know, Cena had gone on to to make movies and, and do various other projects in Hollywood and stuff like that. And, you know, had would come back and wrestle from time from time to time but by no means was he a a full-timer at this point Mm -hmm. either so Mm -hmm. it's just this interesting mix of where despite what cena is now bray still sees cena for the person that he was in the ring with six years ago he still sees him as as the person on the pedestal that needs to get knocked down well, and it, it doesn't seem like it's just that. Uh, it seems like Bray has this sort of long contextualized view of John Cena. You know, starting with uh, Cena's very, 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 very first appearance, apparently. Yes. And I think that that is in service of what I think is actually the larger motivation here is that it's not just about beating Cena now. That's what it was like. That's what it was about six years ago. It was about beating Cena. Mm-hmm. This time, it's about breaking him. It's about deconstructing him by making him finally, truly turn his eyes around in his head to face his own mind and mm-hmm. to face his own self. Because this whole this whole match is built around. John Cena being confronted with the vulnerabilities and the and the full and the 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 um the flaws and the fallible nature of who he has built himself to be and that sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. like it's it's just such a wonderful like existential teardown of who John Cena Mr. Hustle loyalty respect truly is in a way. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful to watch. <laughs> yeah, the it um it really 
it's it's pretty shocking <sighs> given that like Cena's one of those uh performers that I saw like the beginning of. Um, but from there I've really only absorbed as um as like a non-wrestling fan. Um mm-hmm. and like culturally you can't really get away from John Cena. Um, like he's just he's he is bigger than wrestling at this point. Um, he's just like he's just a, a public persona. Yeah. Um and you know, viewing him like that, it it was, you know, what we got in the Firefly Funhouse match was was kind of shocking. Because, like, I hadn't really been thinking of him in that way. Like, I, you know, i just been thinking of John Cena as just, like, an- another actor. You know, basically, like, The Rock take two. Mm-hmm. Um, Bray Wyatt pretty much fundamentally changed that. Like, pretty much fundamentally, like, destroyed that. Because um, he, he sort of forces you to take, you know, John Cena as a as a continuity um it it really i i remember seeing we talked about this a little bit um and i i i don't know if it was it was probably a uh a a rerun or a previously on or, or even an online clip after the fact but i remember seeing right after the ruthless aggression introduction of John Cena. I remember seeing him perform, like, mm-hmm. and like when I was getting out, he had pretty much just started to like on the path of becoming like the John Cena that you know that that became like the the hustle respect loyalty john cena like i think i think you referred to it um what was the what was the rap uh the rapping phase called oh the doctor of thugonomics doctor of thugonomics thank you yeah like that's you know i can i can almost you know carbon date when i got out of uh when i when i sort of like phased out of wrestling because like that was like just starting to happen and it's it is bizarre because like John Cena, he's still a huge, he's still a big guy, still a very healthy guy, but he's no longer an absolutely young guy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And seeing him, you know, in his full hustle, respect, loyalty, regalia, um, but intersp- interspersed with these uh these clips of a younger John Cena, like the weight that Bray Wyatt is sort of putting on him is given like a temporal element. It, like you feel it. This isn't this isn't just history. These are years. This is mileage. Like this is this is a culmination of someone's life, and this is all happening around like <laughs> just like creepy paper plate puppets. And like, <laughs> like the worst backdrop set I've ever seen. And there in the middle of it, 
is 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 Bray Wyatt giving you know the best slasher smile I've seen in 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 many a year. <laughs> yes, and like it's 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 also interesting like the structure of this too. Like not only just like what like you juxtapose these things against, right? Like where you mix like the humorous elements of like some of the of the puppets and like you know the the Mister McBoss Man, like clear like devilish facsimile of one Vince McMahon character that we see throughout this. But then like this, how they portray like these elements of of the past of john cena like you know the, the that ruthless aggression era kind of being embodied by john cena's debut back in 2002 you know with with him answering kurt angle's challenge but this time like bray recreating it but in an environment where he is ultimately in control and where like cena is like can only can only repeat the phrase ruthless aggression because that's what he said that's just what he kept. That's what he said to Kurt Angle before he slapped him. That's the only thing he said. Yeah, like I mean, he introduced. He said, "My name is John Cena," and then ruthless aggression is like over and over again. Like Bray is just taunting him, like you know, telling him, "Like I can see why you almost got fired. I can see, like I can see why you, this is like this is why you see you say this is your your greatest failure. Like, are you really sure you wanted that? This is what you want to do with your life, all the way down to him." fucking this is one of my favorite parts of this match the you can look but you can't touch as a as a nod to um former wwe wrestler nikki bella who was in a relationship with john cena and that relationship crashed and burned um like it is so deeply deeply personal cutting straight through John Cena in, in in just this like one to two minute part before we even get to anything else that's poking fun at, well, at other aspects of him. Well, and you're absolutely right. It, and it's not just personal for John Cena. It's personal for the WWE. Like Bray Wyatt is, he is, I think you, you put it perfectly. Bray Wyatt is out to deconstruct John Cena. But John Cena is the WWE in many ways. Like he, you know, he is he is a face of their, you know, uh, of their of their business, of of their history. And the Firefly Funhouse goes out of its way to contextualize John Cena in the history of the WWE and like the history of you know of wrestling in the past thirty years. Oh, um, do you want do you want to talk about Johnny Largemeat? Oh, uh, yes, yes, I do. <laughs> I feel like this is the we're we're going down this very serious path until we get to Johnny Largemeat, and I don't mean to cut straight to the to the go for it, go for it. the cheese here. No, no, I want to get your take on Johnny Largemeat and what this what that means in the because you were setting this up perfectly, and I feel I, like I, there there was there was absolutely like the, the um. Um, I I remember them being referred to as as meathead wrestlers. Um, th- there's this this point where where Bray is is making fun of Cena for basically just being like all build and and no and like no soul, like like he's not he's not a wrestler like he's just a, he's a good look, like he's just a big dude. And there are 
mini wrestler. Like Bray isn't just making fun of Cena. Bray is calling out like an entire strata of performers that the WWE propagated for decades. And still celebrates. Yeah. Yeah. Now I do not, I, I don't misunderstand me here. Like there are performers that some people look down on that I hold in the highest esteem. I am of course referring to hacksaw fucking Jim Duggan. (laughs) (laughs) There are, there are people who will try and tell you that hacksaw Jim Duggan is a bad wrestler. These people are false prophets and they are bearing (laughs) false witness and they should not be believed. Yeah. This is a no hacksaw hate zone. In the show. We will, we will not tolerate it. It will not be, that is like we are we are not making a space for that kind of of, of lie in this no. world. We'll tape up our fists and fucking block you. <laughs> 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 Doesn't matter if we have a two by four or a mop bucket, we will take you to church. <laughs> like <laughs> the um and between and we're gonna get back to this whole contextualizing the WWE thing, but Bray is is sort of uh you know in the context of the firefly funhouse match uh bray is trying to break cena by confronting him with with the ridiculousness of of his previous you know of, of his previous personas and his 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 work like trying to minimize it trying to show the cracks the flaws in cena and it's not until about what 10 minutes in uh, when Bray is is doing his best to make fun of the you know the doctor of thugonomics persona, and Cena actually starts to bite back, and you know it, it is done through John Cena white guy rapping, which is uh, look, look I'm not going to defi- I'm not going to defend every decision made by the WWE <laughs> or John Cena. <laughs> like, I just don't have it in me. But John Cena points out that Bray is Bray White is spending so much I I I don't want to you sh- you need to go listen to it because it's pretty amazing uh but in his in his little rap Cena basically calls out Bray like the reason that you're so good at identifying weakness is because there is so much weakness in you like the reason the reason the things bother you that bother you are because you are just as flawed and cracked as I am. And it's the first time we see that like it's the first time we see any sort of pushback against this this Bray Wyatt fire Firefly Funhouse magic. And it, it genuinely seems to bother Bray, like um in a way that like I find very interesting. Yeah, I mean it it and you see Bray respond in multiple ways during that, right? Because like the way that Cena like kind of cuts him down, like yeah, he's pointing out that you are you are just as like flawed as as I am. You know, you you squander opportunity at at times and stuff like that, and then things don't always like fall where they should for you and that sort of thing. But he also does it in a way that is gets pointed out by Bray, like. He brings up Husky Harris and he uses that reference to 
basically like make a crack about Bray's weight. Yeah. You know, and like it's like it's one of the and Bray just like after that that sequence ends, like Bray is just like, you know, chances like what are you talking about? Like I had to fight for every chance that I had. You had everything handed to you. You know, you had everything handed to you and and you know, I had to like work and build myself into this creature that is before you now this all powerful i had to build myself into this this figure that could control this entire environment that you are within you know there's nothing you can do in this environment that i don't let you do but i had to do that because i worked to build that for myself i had to scrape and claw for it meanwhile you you're a 16-time world champion at this point, right. you know, yeah, you've absolutely. been, the, you've been the face of this company for over a decade. Like you're John Cena. John Cena doesn't have stuff. Doesn't work. Doesn't work to get stuff in the context of the WWE. John Cena is constantly celebrated. Meanwhile, at the same time, Cena rose to that space by exploiting the flaws of everyone else around him and pointing them out. And there is some truth to that, by the way. Like there's been there's been multiple promos that Cena has cut over the years that, you know, kind of go beyond the the idea of, you know, kind of getting under the skin of your opponent or like insulting your opponent to build to a match or something like that, to the point where like there was a promo where like Cena like in front of the entire crowd, just basically told Roman Reigns, like, you don't know how to cut a promo. Oof. Like, just eviscerated him. Whatever, whatever they were, like, Roman Reigns is being built to be, like, the next, like, big star, like, face of the company. You know, like, it's just, and, and I know there are other instances, they're not all coming in my mind right now, but, like, or, or like, you know, like, we, I, I mentioned this when we were watching the match, like, you know, whenever Cena was, um, like, had this feud with the Nexus, which was a group that Bray Wyatt, as Husky Harris, was a part of, um, you know, and, like, there was a moment during a uh, elimination tag team match at SummerSlam that year where, like, Cena was the last man left on his team against the Nexus, like the last two members of the Nexus, and he got DDT'd on the concrete floor and then, like, basically just got up and acted like nothing had happened and beat both of the other members of the Nexus to win the match and it effectively, like, killed the Nexus's, like, push in the eyes of a lot of fans, and a lot of fans were very upset about that. You know, that's where I, that's a, probably one of the more like more egregious instances of the idea of Super Cena kind of coming through, right? Mm. Like, there's these instances where, like, where at least in the in the fans' eyes, that Cena has put himself over people who fans were responding to, or that fans wanted to see more of, or see them rise, and that sort of thing. And this goes back to WrestleMania 30 as well, where like. Those people, the fans and, and those wrestlers, like felt wronged in in some ways by by that. And some of them never got back to that point. You know, Bray is one of the few that like kept building and building and building, and people never lost their faith in him and never lost their fandom for him. 
you know, even after he got released from the company a little like about a year after this match that we're talking about and then came back. Um, people were ecstatic to see him back at WWE in 2022. Um, because Bray resonates with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, although I, um, having, you know, uh, watched the Firefly, Fly, uh, Firefly Funhouse match with you and, uh, you know, reading up on it, watching some stuff on it, um, on the era and the performances and the fiend, it's it is interesting to me that the primary sin Bray Wyatt seems to be calling John Cena out for is one that se is a, an accusation that seems to get leveled at the Fiend by a lot of well when during the Fiend's run by a lot of by a lot of uh, by a lot of fans. Mm -hmm. This idea of like. Okay, the fiend's gonna come out and he's gonna win, and you know it's gonna kill, you know, eight to twelve minutes, and nothing's gonna change. The um, it now. <clears throat> that being said, the the fiend is very much like um, one of these supernatural heels. You know, we they've been they've come in and out of popularity for you know, the past 30 years, you know, you know, Taker was a big one. You know, Kane was another one. Um, And we were talking about this, you and I, after we watched uh, the Firefly Funhouse match for the first time. And, you know, I was talking about Undertaker and how, like, you know, it took, you know, um, it took, you know, Foley's Mankind um, to sort of, uh, to sort of equal like if you've got if you've got supernatural evil, the only way to equal it is just good old fashioned down home American crazy. And you had mentioned that that WWE when they were when you know the fiend was was the most prominent, didn't really have a mankind, didn't really have a a a similar a similarly like larger than life, you know, almost parahuman kind of storied. Uh, you know, character wrestler to go out there and match the fiend with. Yeah, I mean, they 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 really did not. I mean, the closest thing that you could say maybe to them having that was in Finn Balor, because while Finn Balor like wrestled just as like himself, like most of the time for like big matches, he would tap into this like demon character that he had and like he would change up his look he would usually be like a full body paint um ordeal sort of thing and would come out and, and kind of change his manners a bit it would just be like a more aggressive more um lethal version of finn balor right but that wouldn't have even worked in this instance because um they had tried a Finn Balor versus Bray Wyatt thing a little ways back during this. This was previous to the feat. Um, and that the way that they executed that, um, and I'm not going to say this is any fault of Finn or Bray, honestly. I think this is more a fault of the creative team behind it, was um, uh, – how can I say this? Completely flaccid? Um, <laughs> it was so bad. It was so, 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 so bad. Um and it was it, it frustrated so much that I don't think while they're probably I think if people had actually finally gotten like the demon Finn Balor versus the fiend Bray Wyatt, 
that probably would have worked. But that that whole like feud they had previous, like I think left a very strong bitter taste in the mouth of, of a lot of people, including creative people at WWE. Um, mm. And outside of that, there really wasn't anybody. I mean, really at this point, when, at the point that we're looking at here, the only person who had beaten the fiend was Goldberg of all people. <laughs> um, Goldberg, because up until like about a month or so before WrestleMania, the fiend was the WWE champion. And then Goldberg beat the fiend at one of their Saudi Arabia shows, uh, you know, ugh, um, for the title still set up a match originally it was supposed to be Goldberg yeah, versus Roman I'm Reigns. So, I'm so glad but, that those are a thing, by the way. Oh yeah. Great. Great stuff. Taking fucking PR money from a fucking government that still criminalizes homosexuality and, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, couldn't 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 be couldn't be okay. Couldn't be okay. Couldn't be. Um but yeah, like it was just like the fiend, the way that he had been booked to this point, like like you said, like he didn't have that other supernatural or like otherworldly force to to go up against and really kind of solidify it. I mean Really, the only time that it felt like you sort of got something like that was at the next year's WrestleMania, whenever he wrestled Randy Orton. And that was just because of the structure of the match itself, which I, I will show you at some point, um, mm -hmm. because it's it's a spectacle in a way. <laughs> uh, but I don't. <laughs> but if I feel like if I go into that match right now, we're going to be off on a 30 minute tangent about that match. So. <laughs> No, I understand. I understand. But but yeah, like it, the fiend suffered from not really having another character on the roster that could really meet it where it was in a lot of ways. And like you still got good matches out of out of this idea of what they of what the fiend was, right? Like the fiend versus Daniel Bryan, I think always stands out as a really great match um for a lot of people. But but yeah, like it just it suffered because there there wasn't a Mick Foley to Bray Wyatt's Undertaker. Mm -hmm. uh, and that um, that that feels like an oversight. That is like that's long story short. That's not that's not Bray Wyatt's fault. That seems like that seems like an over uh, an oversight that happens. In the creative department, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. The um, that you know, that's not to diminish, um, you know, the you know what Bray Wyatt's doing and the you know the interesting stuff that he is doing, uh, but it does it does end up affecting kind of how that's taken in total context. You know what I mean? No, it definitely does. It definitely does. I'm definitely not arguing to the contrary. You know. Like it's it's frustrating because I feel like you don't get to capitalize as much on what the fiend can do if you don't have that other character mm -hmm. that can that it can bounce off of in that way, you know. Like I feel, and the thing is, like the characters can bounce off of like regular ass dudes well at times, just depending on how you want to do it. But like just the way that they that it was booked, because as much creativity as Bray puts into 
the characters and, and the stories that he wants to tell with, with these characters and stuff like that. Like ultimately like, you know, final cut lays with Vincent Mann. Final mm-hmm. cut lays with the creative team, you know, right. and, and, and sometimes having too many cooks in the kitchen that don't, that may be like, well, not really communicating in the same ways. Like you don't get a f- the full execution or the yeah, best execution the- of something. There are some people who who I respect as being part of the uh, the creative development team. Uh, and then I'm like, oh oh yeah, Vince McMahon has has final say on this. None of this matters. <laughs> like, yeah. Like this is this is gonna end up being garbage regardless. Which it, it's not always, and that isn't to diminish what the wrestlers and creative developers who are are doing their best are doing. Um, it just it, it sucks that this is like still a thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The um, but that being said, that is a um. Uh, like those are all those are all issues in in sort of the aggregate and sort of the the you know the the larger context of of this cinematic match taken as itself uh you know there i it's amazing i can see why you would consider it required reading because there i can't think of anything in wrestling i've seen like it um, mm-hmm. and that isn't just format the um both bray wyatt and john cena john cena is a you know i like i said i sort of knew him culturally more than like as a as a wrestler um but john cena is a damn good performer he's a damn good actor he is good at the job he does um and very obviously so is bray wyatt you've got two you've got two you know, I, for lack of a better term, ma- masters of the craft, and they've sort of been they've been sort of set adrift from their their normal their normal formatting, their like their normal medium, and you know together they make something unprecedented. Um, you can't find a better use for a half hour of your time than that. You really can't. No, not at all. Like it's it's. It. It works so well, and we like, oh god, just the moments of where like you know, the Hawaiian shirt variant of Bray comes back, and like you know, he's, oh, he's gonna he like hit Sister Abigail as his finisher on Cena, but then stops and is like, that isn't what ends this. What ends this is you hitting me with the chair like I wanted you to hit me with six years ago. It ends with you embracing this part of yourself that is flawed that embraces this part of you that is darker that questions everything about yourself you know and ultimately like that aggression comes out and it's this downfall because that's when the fiend shows up and you have like the and just him popping out from under the ring and this the brutality there and then cena just phases out of existence <laughs> um right. like my god it's just uh also, I love the nod to Mick Foley with him using the mandible claw during this fiend run as well. It's so good. The uh, 
I'm sorry. What was that? Oh yeah. Um, during the the fiend run, uh, Bray used the the mandible claw. Really? Yeah, as a mm. like bit of an homage mm. to uh, one McFoley. Oh, well, I, you know, I'm uh, gonna need to look up some footage of that and see that. Uh, build my own opinion about that. <laughs> um, it worked. No, no, I, I trust you. Um, <laughs> and from from what I from what I've seen after watching this and trying to view some more uh, some more media of you know what he was doing, you know, I, I think Bray Wyatt got it in in a, a, a way similar to how Mick Foley got it, you know, and how yeah. Terry Funk got it. I can think of no greater praise. <laughs> uh to give than that you know like um i you know it, it's been on my mind a lot thinking about this match um and you know as we kind of picked uh uh picked movie and stuff like that like it it makes you know the the um the feelings of loss that everyone has over this, you know, over Bray Wyatt, it absolutely makes sense. You know, looking at, uh, looking at this performance and, um, and, you know, uh, and, and other ones I saw of his, it absolutely makes sense. And he, he was so damn young. Yeah. He was our age. Yeah, he was, he was our age. The uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's not fair, no, you know, the um, it's not fair, and I, you know, I understand saying that, you know, just hearing myself saying that, I, I understand it's it's childish, but um, you know, there's and it's you know there's there's truth in that childishness. There's there's truth in that kind of gut reaction. Um, it is, you know, it is it is a it's a cold comfort to remember performers that matter to us fondly and warmly. Um, and you know, I'm 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 happy to have been sort of brought up to speed on on why this guy just captivated the the interest and imagination of so many fans um and i don't think that'll i don't think that'll ever go away i don't you know just looking at you know what he did and what he put out there i don't think that ever goes away it it shouldn't be it shouldn't be the silver lining. There should be no silver lining here. You know, a, a man should just still be alive. But it um, it is it is pretty good to know that you know, much like myself, there are going to be people for you know for however long wrestling is a thing. There are going to be people, you know, googling and youtubing, you know, Bray Wyatt and discovering a pretty amazing performer. Yeah, truly one of a kind performer and an amazing man that was Wyndham Rotunda. 
that brought the character of Bray, Bray Wyatt to life. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. So uh we're gonna we're gonna try and we're gonna try and ease up on the uh ease up on the stick here a little bit and uh put y'all in as good of a mood as we were in watching this movie. Yes, yes. Um from one uh person's odyssey to reconstruct themselves into a devilish figure in a grotesque mask to another, I guess, with the film that we're linking yeah. the Firefly Man, we hit it on the head with. We hit it on the head with this one. That's why <laughs> that's why we do this show. That's why we do it. Because we, we know how to the, thread that needle. We do. Yeah. The um uh we're gonna be covering uh George A. Romero's two thousand film Bruiser. Mm. Uh, this is one of his lesser known flicks. Um, you probably listening know George A. Romero better from his zombie films, uh, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, and Diary of the Dead. Yes. The, um, uh, he also uh, he had a oh boy did he have an extensive filmography um the um although i always liked uh there was a movie he did in the 80s called night riders did you ever see that one i still haven't seen night riders no um i've been i've been meaning to watch that one <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's about stunt motorcyclers who are also the knights of the round table it's yeah. awesome. It is awesome. <laughs> really I'm is. bummed that I haven't gotten around to watch it yet. Trust me. Um, I think that and Dark Half are the only two of his films that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, I uh, I was actually um, I, I I mean, of course, I watched Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, uh, Day of the Dead. Out of the the OG three, I think Dawn's the best. You know, I know that's a, a pretty stock answer. Um, although I don't think the crazies gets as much credit as it should. No, I think the crazies and Martin are the two that I feel like are the two that never get as much credit as they should. Martin was so good. Yeah. Um, but we're not here to talk about those. Although keep an eye out, (laughs) keep an an eye out for the crazies or Martin. I got a, I got a feeling. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> if you were if you were to bet that George Romero is going to show up on this show again, you'd probably make your money back. Um, but today we're going over a movie he released in two thousand uh, called Bruiser. It's one of his lesser known flicks, uh, starring uh, Jason Fleming and Peter Stormare, who you will know from fucking everything, and yes. also most importantly. Tom Atkins, who was in uh, Night of the Creeps and Halloween 3. And Maniac Cop. And Maniac Cop. Tom Atkins, basically, if you had a movie where you needed a cop who was just too old for this weird shit, Tom, Ad- Tom Atkins was your man. <laughs> Tom uh, Atkins is oh, just oh, such a beautiful soul. Like, in the eighties, like there wasn't a bad movie. He was he was in the fog. He was in Escape from New York. He was in Creep Show. He was in Maniac Cop. 
He was in the ninth configuration. He was in Lethal Weapon, which I I can't like. Look, I'm not a fan of you know who, mm-hmm. um, but I can't help having feelings for Lethal Weapon as a film. I can understand that. I mean, I still I still do at times, but it's mostly because of Danny Glover. Oh God, Danny Glover, like. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> as much as like people give Mel Gibson credit for the Lethal Weapon movies, you could have had a mime playing opposite Danny Glover in those things, and they'd still be gold. <laughs> Danny Glover is the unsung hero of literally every project he is in. Yes, um, but <laughs> we're not here to talk about Lethal Weapon. <laughs> we're not here to talk about Tom Atkins. Although, watch out for the episode where we do all Tom Atkins movies. <laughs> I, you joke. I am he is still, not against that idea. <laughs> he is still alive. He is still going. Like, and like, oh man, he, he's worked with Fred Decker. He's worked with John Carpenter. He's worked with George Romero. He's worked with Shane Black. Like, Richard Donner. Okay, okay. Stephen King. Okay, we're not. I can't. <laughs> I can't. I can't. Okay. There will be time right. to talk about Tom Atkins later <laughs> on as we talk about this film. Yeah. I, I have to wonder if we if some of the affection we have for Bruiser is because of the affection we have for so many components of Bruiser. I mean, I, de- I think that definitely plays into it, obviously. I mean, you know, we have a genre film foundation, I think, to a lot of our love for art, right? And yeah. And, of course that usually goes hand in hand with a love for George Romero because he is one of the, like the forefathers of modern genre fiction, you know, with what oh, he did with, with, with his dead trilogy, his original dead oh, trilogy. Oh yeah. As well as all these other really interesting interpretations of various forms of horror and other genre film leading up to, to this film as well, because, you know, like I think bruiser is such a, a odd thing to categorize at times because it's marketed mm-hmm. as a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you're absolutely. But but as we yeah. talked about, it's it's it is very much a noir thriller from like the 50s or 60s. Yeah, wearing, all the way down wearing... to how the cops talk. <laughs> oh yeah, oh, all the way all the way down to the costuming, all the way down to the costuming. Like it is. Uh, like uh, and I feel like only Romero can really get down into it and and make movies like set out to make a a horror movie that is also a noir that that sneaks a noir thriller in on you. The um um bruiser is you know we chose it we chose it for this one uh because after watching fire the firefly funhouse uh match like really what was sticking with us was this concept of identity um this concept of self and just how important it is to have this center because you know the the whole conflict between you know uh uh bray wyatt and john cena is that you know Bray Bray thinks John you know John may look like the golden child but he's actually just you know the face of entitlement whereas 
Cena seems to his counter argument is that Bray Wyatt would like to portray himself as the martyr who was passed over, but he's just uh, he's a he's a C plus meal in an A plus box. The um, <laughs> and both of those strike them to their very core. It you know it makes them question everything about themselves. Um, Bruiser is a is a noir film all about that. Um, and it goes about telling that story by having almost no characters that you can root for. <laughs> like, Wonder Boy and I, like, kind of, we stumbled into this and accidentally ended up talking about it for about a half hour. There is no one that we 100% really like in Bruiser as a character. I think there's maybe one that I can make an it, argument for. Is it Tom? Okay, maybe two. But okay, no, no, okay. not I, maybe no. I, you know what, Tom? Tom still like. Mm, we'll get. Well, I'll I'll get into why maybe Tom like doesn't strike me as a hundred percent likable. Okay, and, yeah, later I, on. I, I can't wait. I can't wait. But, but you know what? We 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 will we'll sort of review the characters as we kind of come to their culmination. Okay, that? that that sounds good to me. That sounds good to me. So we're we're going to walk you through this movie like we like we did like well like we tried to do with Roadhouse, but basically just ended up counting the spin kicks. <laughs> <laughs> Final tally, not a goddamn nuff. <laughs> um, but we're gonna walk you through uh, Bruiser, um, and we are going to bring up some points that we uh, that we noticed as we were watching it. Um. So this take this as your spoiler warning. Um, if you wanted to watch this movie, uh, you know, completely, you know, uh, uh, completely, you know, new to the material, and then come back and listen, this is where you want to stop. Okay. So the movie uh, Bruiser starts. Uh, very important. This movie was made in in nineteen ninety nine two thousand, and you feel that almost immediately. Um. <laughs> We spend a little time uh, with the main character, Henry Creedlow, and he's getting ready for work and uh, he's listening to the radio. And it seems to be this sort of Howard Stern, Loveline kind of call-in show where people talk about like their issues. But the the guy that they talk to about their issues, um, it's a guy named, uh, oh, what is his name? I think it's Larry Case. Larry Case, thank you. Larry yeah. Case is the is the radio DJ, and uh, he's basically just a just a dick on wheels to them, like just very very dismissive. Um, and where he's not dismissive, he's a little too oblivious to actually really help anybody. To the point where the movie starts, and when we're listening to the radio, we're also listening to the the sound of the the shower running, the sound of the faucet running. We start off with some primo. Ramiro audio chaos. If you're not familiar with that, Ramiro, if you go back and watch, uh, especially Dawn of the Dead, um, I, I believe there's some in the crazies as well. Ramiro loves expressing the chaos of a scene through the juxtaposition of chaotic media audio and the, you know, the introduction of characters. And to his credit, it's a great way to get some exposition out of the way. It's a great way to set tone. 
the um you want and you know we don't really notice you know the chaos of like sounds and 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 media playing while we're going about our business uh but he brings he brings a sort of like a, a static to it that is impossible to ignore the um uh very much um if you've got um if you've got youtube in front of you go check out the um the intro scene to dawn of the dead uh, his version of dawn of the dead and you'll see exactly what we're talking about yeah, it's, um, it's the most like spitting example of, of what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. And it's it's sort of it's juxtaposed with this very fastidious cleaning that Henry Henry's like we're we're basically watching Henry like brush his teeth and we're like right in his gums. You know, we're we're watching him, you know, shave. You know, we are watching him put himself together. Um and it's clear pretty early on that um, that he is a, a deeply unhappy, unfulfilled guy. Like his uh, his wife is just completely indifferent to like his existence. Uh, his house is in shambles in the middle of a remodel, and uh, his wife's like demonic poodle <laughs> setting off the table saw that he eats his cereal on. Oh, God. Real quick, before we move off of this, I love the fact that this is set in the house in the middle of the remodel, and the remodel is just this gaudy, marble-floored fucking mess of a thing that is just a entire like tribute to excess and status symbol that does not compute with this man at all. Whatsoever. If um, if you're a little younger than us, you might not remember the the pre-2008 crash mcmansions but that's exactly what this fucking is it is excess for excess's sake and it doesn't seem fulfilling at all like and ramiro is more than happy to to get in there and revel in how uncomfortable this is supposed to all make us uh wonder uh, i we were talking about this film and uh, you know i kind of mentioned off the cuff i don't know who else could have directed it and uh, Wonder Boy mentioned, I, I think, cutting right through the bullshit, mentioned David Fincher. And I think Wonder Boy's exactly right. Fincher could have could have also hit this kind of unsettling, you know, in between kind of existence for this guy. But where like Fincher kind of ends up rubbing your nose in it, and like you know, hey, you know, you know, you know, you know the the human condition is bad, and you should feel bad. Uh, Romero has this almost jovial nihilism where he's just like, oh yeah, no, all of this sucks. We all suck. Like, we are all <laughs> in the mud. So uh, you better get comfy because like, that's where that's where we live for the next hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and we it's it's that it's that piece of shit poodle dog setting off the table saw and like the 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 the, the former the former the, the the former uh the former OSHA compliance representative you know uh you know liaison in me just was like oh, no <laughs> <laughs> um and i love that ramiro will put these like and this kind of sort of goes to what we're talking about with like it's a noir movie wearing a horror movie's coat um uh, ramiro is happy as a clam to put you see it's it's Chekhov's table saw at no point, I'm going to tell you this right now. Nobody gets table sawed, which is weird, right? But like, he's more than happy to, in a movie all about 
the disappointment of identity, he is more than happy to not pay off a Chekhov's gun. And I really, or at least not in the way that you think it's going to pay. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. The um, absolutely. And we'll get into that later. The, um, uh, he's like the, one of the first things that tells us that Henry is not doing okay is after he puts himself together for work, he puts a gun under his chin and as the sound of him pulling the trigger goes off, we cut back and it's just a daydream he's having. Yeah. When he tries to board uh, the, the, the train to go into town, a woman pushes him out of the way. And so very understandably, he throws the woman down on a train track till her head pops like a grape. Yeah. And then it, it jump cuts back and he, of course, just imagined that and he gets on the train. Uh, having not confronted anybody about anything. And these daydreams he's having are very, they are cut and shot. Like they feel just different enough in how they're edited and shot. They feel kind of like a, uh, like a Hitchcock flick. And they're just different enough that you realize in hindsight that you're watching a daydream. The, uh, uh, Henry finally gets to his office where he works for a magazine called Bruiser. And the magazine is run by a guy named Milo Stiles. And Milo Stiles is played by Peter Stormare. And Milo Stiles is so aggressively awful. Like, he is basically... Every complaint Americans have about sleazy European guys, Milo Styles is it. I, I I can't think of a better way to put it. I mean, I would even go so far as to say, like, the sleaze associated with, like, the fashion industry. Yeah. yeah as well. Absolutely. You know, but we're talking about just, like, a fucking, like, coked up sex fiend fuck anything that moves dude who does not give a fuck about yeah yeah, misogynist does not give a fuck about anyone's feelings will just keep talking about how he's the only one in the room with balls all the goddamn time just like that worst boss you've ever had in the world but turned up to fucking a thousand and of course you get somebody like peter stormare to play that character because you you want an actor that's willing to meet that you absolutely do and like uh, Henry and his work buddy Tom kind of roll their eyes at 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 Milo's you know over the top like sleaziness, but they don't do anything about it. Even when Milo like calls out Henry, who Henry was trying to uh, tries to make a suggestion based off of on on the cover. He's trying to make he tries to make a suggestion on who should belong on the cover of the next issue of the magazine. He bases his decision off of the uh, the work of the photographer Rose. Um, Rose is uh, uh, Rosie is uh, Milo's wife, and probably the, the 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 closest to like a good person that we're gonna get throughout this entire film. Was was she the other one you were thinking of? Yes, yes. Rosie was the the one likable character that I know for sure I feel is a likable person in this movie. No, I will say that like Henry 
seems to be a better person around Rosie and Rosie seems to be happy around Henry. They have this, a very clear friendship that they also, both actors do a great job of portraying as like, there's something there. There's, you know, there's some kind of spark there that might go beyond friendship, but they're both married to different people. And like, they, they, they're, they're very clearly not, you know, doing anything about it. So um, it just sort of hangs in the air and, you know, we, co- we sort of continue on the film. Uh, the next scene is is like a is a party that Milo is throwing, and uh, it's uh, pretty gross. <laughs> like it's like uh, uh, Tom, uh, Henry's buddy Tom is there perving on the 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 uh, the model chosen for the the next issue's cover, um, and. Uh, like it, uh, some people seem to just be trying to have like like a nice work barbecue get together, but since Milo Styles is there, it's gonna be it's gonna be grimy. It's gonna be it's gonna be slimy. Uh, it's gonna be gross. It's gonna be sweaty, and someone's going home sad. Yeah, uh, multiple Rosie... people are going home sad. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Rosie and Henry continue having, you know, a pretty a pretty strong connection. And Rosie is passing the time at this party by making plaster masks out of people's faces. And once she has these blank plastic molds, she gives people their, you know, their 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 blank face to paint and decorate for a a sort of uh, a sort of uh, installment art piece she has in their backyard. Um, she makes one for Henry. And Henry can't think of anything to put on it. He can't think of, of anything that he can't think of any design or or any any art he wants to put on his on his mask. Yeah, it's almost like he's fishing from other people's work to try and think of something to put on there, and which mm-hmm. Rosie calls him out on. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, nah, it's gotta be you, man. And like they're they're having this sort of character building moment. When Henry looks over and Milo, who is Rosie's husband, is getting a public below-the-pants hand job from Henry's wife Janine. <laughs> right by the pool. <laughs> I don't I don't know what else to call it. Like it is just a a, a straight up fucking Saturday night special. Like, <laughs> hand in the pants. Like you know, fist presented, and uh, so as you can imagine, this causes some contention between Henry and his wife Janine on the drive home. Um, and this is where I have to point out that, like, if you were thinking that Janine, uh, Henry's wife, might be one of those good people in this story, you're mistaken. I, I don't know how else to describe Janine as a character other than she feels like a subreddit post about infidelity that was brought to life. <laughs> like, I le- legitimately, like the things, like on the drive home, some of the dialogue that she has with Henry, like legitimately actresses in cuckold pornography be like you need to calm down and have more uh, have more respect for your partner than this 
because this is this is frankly out of line. Yeah. I mean, like when she tells him, like, you know, I thought I was fucking my way to the like, you know, they talk about women that fuck their way to the top. I'm fucking myself to the bottom. Like, you know, you're going I thought you were going somewhere, but you're going nowhere. Like I've like six years wasted. Like, yeah, like it all, seems like this all entire... you do all you do is eat shit and you don't do anything else. Like Yeah, you know, like you I, saw I... him you saw me giving him a hand job at the right. party and you didn't do anything. You didn't why didn't you slug him? Why didn't you hit me? While they are having this conversation, there is a man trying to pump their gas. Yeah. Just <laughs> trying to mind his own business. And God bless him. He is probably one of the I guess two or three decent people we're going to see in this film. <laughs> God. And see, like in this, this, this moment with Janine kind of brings up probably my one main criticism with the film personally, mm-hmm. is that like, you know, I'll, Telling this story, like, yes, you're going to have characters that kind of get boiled down to one thing and and one thing only, right? Like, you're not, there's not going to be a ton of dimension Mm -hmm. for for most of the people that are in this film because it's set up because of like the premise, right? The premise of what Henry goes through and, and that sort of thing. But I, in in preparing to talk about the film like you know i lo- i went through like i just sometimes it's fun to go through like user reviews on letterboxd and stuff like that right and like Ooh. so many people are just like yeah janine like got what she deserved and like yeah janine just this fucking like walking like um like nitpick and this like you know all this other stuff and it's just like i think like for me like the way that janine's characterized i understand this it's service of the story but it also comes across as like fairly misogynistic in a lot of ways um and it's it's kind of it's 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 almost like the like the um the mustache twirling villain and a lot just the way that she talks to him and the way that she's just so brazen about like you know like especially like after that moment when the driving home and like he she drops him off at the house it's like i'm leaving like don't wait up because like of course he's going back to fuck milo more right um right and then when we see her again next time i'm I'm gonna go ahead and spoil this she's off to go fuck milo again like literally I, i if you told me that in the original script that this character had to have like like a fair sex every two hours or she explodes i'd have believed it yeah it's like so so this this movie has merit i i hope you see that and i hope you know that by the by the end of our discussion on it but so many times it makes decisions that feel that feel so myopic that they come close to kind of spoiling the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, Janine's character very much feels in that category. Be and Like it's, it's not even, she's not even similar to Milo Stiles, who is so terrible. Like you kind of can't help, but watch. You almost can't help, but laugh at him. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, so 
after after going to sleep, uh, Henry wakes up, and the plaster mask is on his face. And it's it, not just on it, his face; it is his it, face. It is his face. You know this this completely blank, you know, pure white. Otherwise featureless mask with just these two very beady holes in it, in you know where the eyes are for sight. And uh, if you haven't seen it yet, the Bruiser mask and how it behaves and performs on Jason Fleming's face. And how he performs with it. It's it is to me one of like the best unsettling, like horror adjacent effects of the aughts. It is so effective. Like it's it's minimal. Um, and it's you know, it's it's placid, but it's also terrifying. The um because like it, it you can see some you could see his face move and the mask is moving because the mask is his face and when he smiles it is deeply disturbing um and like you can see his cheekbones moving because like the white leaves like no contrast on his face uh it's it is extremely dehumanizing yeah. and uh the way the way he performs in it and the you know the way it ends up filming and the way he he ends up sounding in it uh, like if this movie was bad based on every other merit i would recommend people watch it for this mask work because it's it is amazing just take it on its own no like i completely agree like you see like this that that first moment of realization for him like i love the moment where he's like trying to like rip it off and all he does is like scratch it and it's just like kind of bleeds like it's his yeah like it's part of his skin yeah he cuts it to try and cut it off and it just cuts into it cuts into his flesh because it is his face yeah uh and so as god sorry go ahead no it's just so it's just so effective especially considering like the journey that we're about to go down with him yeah absolutely um the um unfortunately we're about to get into another one of those scenes and another one of those characters yep <laughs> because God. as he is struggling with this mask his his latina maid katie comes in to the house and he hides because his face is a featureless white plaster mask. And she just immediately begins stealing silver off of his off of off of their shelves. Yeah. Like literally just immediately steals. God is, is stealing from his wallet, is stealing from his shelves is just taking and uh it is 
it's again like I can understand that it goes to this like there are very few good people in this story kind of feeling but oh boy is this some early aughts anti-immigrant bigotry <laughs> like my god is it I mean she has what like a, a, what, one to like two minutes of screen time in the entire movie and it's during this scene and the only yeah. thing we see her do is steal and then try and like Lie. weasel out of it yeah before we... getting fucking murdered yeah, and like it's actually there's also some like misogyny going on like literally she has more screen time as a corpse than yeah. as a character and I say corpse, when Henry realizes she's stealing, something happens inside Henry. Henry doesn't like back down or pretend it didn't happen or anything. He confronts her, uh, reveals he he too can speak Spanish, so he's understood what she has been saying, and then beats her to death with the silver she stole. Yeah. Now, again in the context of the story about there being like very few good people and the context of Henry is beginning to change in a way he doesn't understand and cannot control. This scene makes sense. It makes sense that he is not able, like he has become this mask has transformed him into a creature that is not allowed to ignore its impulses. That tracks perfectly. That tracks fine with the story we, the story that's being told. But uh, oh man, is this just some early aughts anti-immigrant bigotry? Like it's there. We have to call it for what it is. Yeah. Like it is, it is. I you know this isn't to this isn't to to say you know boycott or cancel George Romero or anyone else. It is very clearly of its time. It is it's very clearly not meant to be taken as you know, as as a, a a blanket condemnation of of immigrants. Um, the but it what's on the screen is on the screen. That's all I can say. Yeah. And if you were to say that was gross as hell, you'd be perfectly within your rights to say it. The um, this is where we get the payoff for the table saw, by the way, because <laughs> uh, the 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 little ratty poodle dog that uh, Henry hates uh, comes back into the house when his wife shows back up and is on her cell phone talking to Milo about how happy she is to be cheating with him and how happy she will be to be cheating with him later. I'm not even fucking kidding. That is the width, breadth, and depth of her conversation. Yep. The uh, the demonic poodle may be a more complex character than Janine <laughs> because the poodle keeps wanting to press the button that turns on the table saw and Henry is hiding behind the table saw. So he does not want attention brought to this table saw. Thankfully, uh, Janine's inability to give a shit about anything except for extramarital affairs kicks in and she leaves without checking on anything. 
Yeah, like the dog turns on the table saw, but she just complains about how Henry never unplugs the thing and then unplugs yes. it. Yes, and she very explicitly <laughs> complains he doesn't even know what to do with an extension cord. Keep yep. that in mind because the movie is going to come on back to that. Uh, Henry follows his wife and uh, uh, to his office and spots her and Milo having sex. And the movie is clearly setting up the um you know the, the slasher perspective walk where the, the camera is supposed to denote you know the eyes of the killer closing in on uh on their next victims. If you've watched a horror movie you know exactly what this shot is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> However, uh when the door is thrown open and Milo and Janine's very late 90s sex scene is revealed uh, it turns out that the perspective was from Rosie, who has taken a picture of Milo cheating with Janine and now uh, prepares to use it to, I, I assume, divorce him and, and get proper recompense. Milo, that, where... That seems like the plan. Sorry. That, you know, yeah, of course, of course. Um, <laughs> Milo wearing very, very high mesh boxer briefs that are are... <laughs> Are just translucent enough for to to see a you don't you don't see the whole you don't see the whole Peter Stormare, but you see <laughs> you see a little Petey you see a little Pete. Get a little peek yeah splash splash of Pete for flavor. <laughs> you, you might not see his whole Peter, but you definitely see his Stormare, like. <laughs> and he runs outside to try and convince his his wife not to run over him in the Land Rover and like literally I love how he's like he's running after her like I can't believe you were spying on me that's a violation of my trust this is a private <laughs> moment I'm just like oh man just, like, just the grossest man literally the worst like <laughs> just the worst person uh, Janine is getting up and getting dressed presumably to go have another extramarital affair somewhere else she double booked uh when henry comes in and just starts like just start i can't i don't even know how else to describe it he basically starts like ghost face slashers like fucking with her like she like hides under a table and he's just like i'm gonna get you like where am i like like chairs are getting pushed off like papers <laughs> are getting thrown over it's like and, you know, Janine, just toying with her yeah worrying for her life as she should tries to get away but uh, turns out Henry was on top of the table that's, that's the, it's the big joke and telling her that he knows exactly what to do with an extension cord Henry ties an extension cord around her neck throws a chair through the fourth story window and then hucks her out of it like a bag of oranges yep just, just in time for oh just in time for Peter Stormare to see in his mesh boxer briefs. And she's just left there like hanging from the window above the, the oh, fucking yeah. street. Oh yeah, the, the camera spends more time on the hanging body of the of the cheating woman than I would say is comfortable or necessary. Yeah. Now again, we would <laughs> I want to assure y'all that we wouldn't be talking about this movie if we didn't think it had merit. If we didn't think that at the end of the day, it was far more good than it is bad. But 
when you see something that clanks, you say something. That's just how it goes. Like we are not here to lie to you. And you know, not every movie that we that you know that we tell you guys about is gonna be um problem free. But it's it's important to note how comfortable this movie is with male on female violence. Yeah. Thankfully, we are more or less done with that. And Henry's actions with Janine, which are clearly like very revenge based, like he is just he is just running off like vengeance at this point. It's contrasted with, you know, the killing of Katie, where he just seemed to lose control. Like here with Janine, he seemed to be very happy to be losing control. Now, the cops show up because there's a corpse dangling from the building. And who should be the main cop but Tom fucking Atkins? You better get used to how I say Tom fucking Atkins because (laughs) no less than four movies starring Tom fucking Atkins will appear on this show. I am not saying maybe there. I am not couching that in anything. You're going to get at least four Tom Atkins movies, and I want you to just go ahead and make fucking peace with that. <laughs> Tom Atkins shows up, clearly not wanting to deal with this bullshit. And Peter Stormare, which I will still remind you, are, is still not wearing pants, runs up and tells him about the body that, that Tom can clearly see. <laughs> so the police try to just start taking hold of the situation while Henry leaves, but... He discovers he has been witnessed by his old buddy, Tom. And actually, this scene is interesting because it's a little heartbreaking in a weird, discordant kind of way. Like, Henry wants Tom to to tell the police he didn't see anybody. Because, you know, he, he doesn't want to be held accountable for his actions. Yeah. Um, Tom is obviously scared for his life, having just witnessed Henry commit a murder, and also kind of weirded out by Henry's, you know, blank plaster face. Henry is very manic at this point and seems to do his best to assure Tom that he doesn't want to hurt him, but he better not say shit. And Tom, at this point, it's clear that it starts going from him not wanting to say anything to the cops to save his own life to him not wanting to say anything to the cops because he's worried about his friend Henry. It's almost like he sees himself in Henry. Very much so. Because Tom is very much characterized in a similar way, kind of like this meek employee there who like, you know, very milk toast guy, like no, nothing, nothing in particular interesting about him. Yeah. And like, it's, it's clear that, and you know, the, um, uh, 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 George Romero and, uh, Jeff Monahan, uh, who played, uh, Tom, they do a very good job, like in, in inflection and like in eye movement in facial expression it's clear that 
Tom is going through in his head, like, would I have done that? Like, would, would I have, you know, would I have killed someone? Would I have taken vengeance for myself? Like, you know, would I have just done what Henry, you know, Henry seemed like a guy like me. Like, is he a guy like me? Am I a guy like Henry? Like, he's dealing with a lot of shit real fast, but he's doing it during the business of, like, moving the story along because George Romero is a, he's a, he's a, he's a traditionalist. Like, you know, like, you don't stop the movie for exposition. Like, you don't, like, you gotta, you gotta keep going. You, you don't stop the movie for character development. That's something that happens along the way of the business of doing the movie. Um, but it's, it's a great little snapshot. And if you see it, and you kind of juxtapose it with this this world full of not so great people that we are seeing, the merits of Bruiser become a lot clearer. Like the 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 sort of the discussion about identity and loss starts kind of coming to the forefront because like it's 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 very clear that like there's a there's a featureless plaster mask that's probably inside Tom somewhere too. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, no, totally. I mean like him looking at at Henry and what Henry has become is like almost looking at like what he what he could become potentially. You know, just like it, it, not to say that he 100% has that in him, but like what if like, what if I just threw off all these other, like, you know, social constructs that are upon me, like these, like, or like these social contracts that are that are within me as well, and just embraced, like, full-on, like, id yeah. desire to write what I feel are wrongs. Yeah. yeah absolutely. The, um, it's, it's childish. It is... It's def- it definitely smacks of like male toxicity. It's it's churlish. It's you know it's self centered. It's solipsistic. But the movie frames it in a way where it's trying to tell you, hey, look, yes, like this is bad. This is not good. But there's a chance that this not good lives in every single person. Yeah. So if you're and here we start getting into because Henry's on it. Henry's kind of on a roll now. He goes back to the house and he starts looking through his financial records and discovering that his buddy Jimmy, who's his accountant, has been fucking him out of some a lot of money, like tens of thousands of dollars. So the reason this starts resonating more and more is because like we can see that like Henry's gotten a taste for, for vengeance. He's gotten a taste for revenge and the, you know, the, the immediate actors against him have already been like, you know, uh, you know, like taken out. So like now he has to go kind of looking for a fight. And Henry does not have like whatever, whatever the impulsiveness of the mask you know, that the mask is representing, you know, whatever the change was, Henry has not developed emotionally enough to control it. Yeah. 
the um so while he's uh while he's hunting down his his tennis buddy you know jimmy the accountant the the cops are you know trying to zero in on the killer and they think rosie's the killer because you know they they catch a glimpse of the mask and rosie made those masks and you know we we know she was in there because she just took the picture it's it also like be that. pointed out that uh, that milo also like blatantly puts the cops on rosie's trail at the crime scene like just yeah. that whole fake that whole fake speech about like you know rosie was there like oh no no there's no way she could have done this like my sweet rosie no no never, no, never she's a, she's an angel yeah like, dude you were just chasing your car milo yeah. is so is so perfect in his absolute shittiness <laughs> it's just it's it is baffling how shitty this dude is. The, and like, um, my, okay, here's the scene that epitomizes Milo to me. Okay, it's not any of like the gratuitous like, f- like fucking like other women or anything like that. It's not like you know fucking Henry's wife like multiple times. It's whenever the cops are at his house, he leaves them waiting in the foyer. So he can go sit on the toilet and take a a dump, I'm assuming, and snort coke at the same time and yeah, then and come out and talk about throwing salami around with all these other ladies. Yeah, and uh, not wipe, by the way. No. He just, just has his bowl out. of cocaine, <laughs> pulls his pants up, sets that down, and then walks right up to the cops. Yeah, he's just like I, I, Wonder Boy and I were talking about this, and Milo Styles is either the greatest villain in an '80s movie that was just ten years too late, or the greatest like super villain from a comic book that was ten years too early. He's one of those two. He's <laughs> just like Cobra Commander wouldn't pull this shit. It is, it's just so refreshing in its awfulness. The, uh, uh, the, the cops are, are, are chasing down leads and stuff. Um, and, uh, when, uh, when Henry leaves to go hunt down a hunt himself a Jimmy, um, he makes he because there's blood in the house because of you know his killing of Katie, so he fires around his house randomly with his gun. You know, leaves his shirt in a bloody pile, and takes aim at a picture of the poodle, saying, "You're the most annoying thing in my life," and then shoots a picture of the poodle, leading us to believe that that poodle is not long of this earth. But as it turns out, as he's you know doing his business with Jimmy. The movie cuts and shows us that the the poodle was picked up by the police and mm-hmm. is being held by a policeman who adores it. <laughs> and it's it's interesting to me that that Henry does not kill the poodle because everything so far in the movie would tell you he would kill the poodle. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I completely understand. I think, and I think you know the point that you brought up in our previous conversation when we 
were like, you know, just got done watching the film was something that really I hadn't really thought about, but it stuck as like, of course he wouldn't do that because of this reason. Like you, because as you pointed out, like that's just the dog's nature. Yeah. It is the dog's nature to behave that way. Dog can't change what he is. Mm-hmm. And at this point, neither can Henry. Yeah. You know, and that's that. While that might not be totally Henry's fault, Henry should absolutely be held accountable for it. And it might not be happening. The um, he goes to kill Jimmy and Jimmy actually kind of calls him out for it. Like he calls him out for like, like basically like, you know, horror movie slasher villaining him. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it it does seem to phase Henry a little bit. Uh, and it gives Jimmy time to try and get a pistol and kill Henry. Uh, Henry manages to uh, Henry manages to kill Jimmy uh, because, like, he got the drop on him. And again, this is where we kind of talk about like this movie is more of a noir, like a noir thriller than it is like a horror movie. And you know, we're starting to see that come more become more and more true as we see like more of Rose. Rosie uh, gets spoken to by the police with um uh with Milo present in the aforementioned cocaine dump scene. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. No, you're fine. But like one a moment that I love about that is that like she's trying to talk to them, but Milo just keeps interjecting and she tells him, like, will you shut the fuck up? And he just keeps talking. Yeah, he's like, you don't Tom talk Atkins, to me like that. Yeah. Tom Atkins turns to, to Milo's like, I believe the lady told you to shut the fuck up. At which point <laughs> Milo like, Styles does in fact shut the fuck up. Exactly. It's fucking Tom Atkins is a man of the people. The um <clears throat> God bless Tom Atkins. Um, the uh, after uh, the uh, uh, after the, the 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 slaying of Jimmy, uh, Henry tries to get Rosie to like run and get out of town because he's con- the cops are convinced that Rosie did it, and he doesn't want her to get in trouble. And when she won't leave. Henry calls the uh, Larry Case um, from the uh, from earlier in the film, the radio uh, announcer, and tells him like, "Oh yeah, I'm the faceless killer that's going around killing people." Uh, the um, yeah, that that was me. I did that. The um, conversation that he and Rosie have kind of perfectly illustrates the disconnect and the problem that Henry is having or Henry is like, why do you stay with this guy? Why do you stay in this situation? You could just fucking leave. Why be surrounded? And he's like, and he's in their mansion. He's like, you know, I wanted to be surrounded by all this opulence too, but it's, it's gross. It's hollow. Why the fuck do you want it? Why did I want it? Like it's, it's useless. Get the fuck out of here. You don't like him. You hate him. Leave. 
And she's like, it is not that simple. Like, I still have to have a life. Like, where, where both Henry and Rosie understand that they may be in unjust situations, Henry seems to be unwilling to understand that the shortest distance between the two points being a straight line just isn't how adults have the luxury of thinking. And it kind of becomes clear in this scene that like Henry may have never understood that he may have gone about the business of like eating shit and doing his job because he thought that's what you were supposed to do. But it clearly baffles him. Like he may have done it, but at the, you know, when he is in like the full mask mode, he doesn't understand why one would do it. You know what I mean? It, yeah. Like it brings out this, this, like, this level of aggression that we haven't seen him have with Rosie to this point. Right. Like he, he like has her like pressed up against a column in the room and like he breaks up a vase you know talking about how gross the opulence of the of of this environment is and that sort of thing it's it's like there's no middle ground for him like whether like pre pre faceless henry to now post faceless henry like they operate on two extremes of of these levels and clearly and th this is where like i think a lot of this ties into the bray wyatt and john cena sort of aspect of identity too is that like this fundamental deconstruction has happened but whereas like Cena and Bray have been able to kind of build these things up and still be able to have like a middle ground somewhere where they can try and figure themselves out a place where they can still fall from right mm. there's there's nowhere for Henry to fall from anymore Henry's fell and there's right. no and there's like the only other place that he knows is this other place that is just a different pit like he has no idea how to exist outside of a pit yeah it, it's it's absolutely true like where where Cena and Wyatt were trying to stay as high up you know to stay as far from falling as they could henry doesn't have that far to drop but when he drops he fucking shatters that doesn't mean that there isn't like there isn't still inherently humanity within him but it's like he he hasn't he hasn't figured out how he is supposed to give a shit. But he's getting there. Like, Rosie, like, Ro like his conversation with Rosie doesn't give him what he wants. And, you know, he was talking with the guy in the Larry Case. Stuff like that. He's like, he's like, you know, if I want, and he basically, like, he's like, you know, if I want my face back, everyone who betrayed me has to die. And for a minute, it looks like he's going to go and kill Tom because it looks like Tom sold him out to the police. 
And so we end up getting this scene <laughs> of uh, of Tom and the um, the model for 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 next month's Bruiser cover, and uh, they're in a hot tub, and Henry is is slowly you know closing in for the kill. And the model straight up asked Tom, like, oh, did you tell him who it was? Tom was like, no, fuck them. Like, I think, as sad as it sounds, like, I barely knew the guy, but he ended up being maybe my best friend. Mm -hmm. And Henry, you know, stops the, stops the murder in progress. And you know, doesn't kill doesn't kill Tom or the or the the model. And uh this is like and again, like the model is portrayed as like exceptionally vapid, and Tom is portrayed as like completely incapable of like making a decision. Like and you know, his in his last kind of scene, in his last moment, he's like, No, nah, yeah, I'm gonna leave town. Like, fuck this. Um, to the point where, like, I kind of want to see what movie he's about to go get into because, like, <laughs> he's like, no, nah, yeah, my buddy, like, my buddy he lost his face to a plaster mask, started killing people, and I saw him, so I better leave town. Like, I want to see what movie that ends up in because that's great. <laughs> like, <laughs> but as and then you know, uh, Henry kind of realizes there's really only there's really only one person left. And that is, of course, Milo Styles. <laughs> the, um, and so it turns out the way to get Milo Styles is to throw the most early 2000s party in the history of the fucking world. <laughs> God damn. How did we describe it? Like it's in like the basement of Studio 54. And it's just like it's what it's, it's like it's uh, it, it is literally it's like it's like the Lost Boys party. The movie the party yes. from the movie The Lost Boys and that ran into the cornfield party from Freddy versus Jason. And like they both carpooled with some of the eyes wide shut people to the basement of Studio Fifty Four, with a little bit of American Psycho sprinkled on top. Yeah, we definitely was some American Psycho sprinkled in there. And yeah. uh, oh, by the way, there's a live band playing at this party. The fucking misfits. The fucking <laughs> misfits. The post dancing misfits. I, I yes. should say. Yes. <laughs> which appeared in the film because Romero directed the music video for their single scream and kind of made a deal with them. Like he would direct the video if they would appear in the movie. The, and like, I, by the way, I love, I love deals like that. Like, Like in like we, you and I have worked in in the creative field long enough to like we've seen sort of the you scratch my back I scratch yours kind of stuff, yeah. And it's so great when it's like yeah I'll um I'll direct your your music video 
but I'm I'm gonna need you to to be a a a, a basement Halloween fuck party band. <laughs> like this, I can't express how much this party comes out of fucking nowhere. Uh, the only time it's previously mentioned is at the very beginning of the movie, like very after that, beginning, after very that beginning board of the movie. meeting. <laughs> like <laughs> the um, like and like. And when I when we tell you like it comes out of nowhere like the the it, it the party is set up by having party attenders not knowing where they are being unloaded from the back of a semi tractor trailer truck uh, being confronted by a man in a, a harlequin outfit who is then stabbed by a homeless man but it turns out that was a gag and the homeless people work for the magazine like they're the their security <laughs> and they're all actors yeah they're all actors and their costumes <laughs> are homeless people <laughs> like god damn it the, the movie does not it refuses to allow you even 15 seconds to try and make sense of that shit because we're already <laughs> to the inside of this party and like I, I, like at one point Somebody just decides that they hate one of the guitarists on on the on the stage and just throws him down into the crowd to be in a fight with what looks like a cross between Bobby Hill and Big Van Vader. Oh yeah, we get our little pro wrestling break. Yeah, yeah, we just because like the dude literally hits like a a, a cross body off of the stage later on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's <laughs> legit. When I first saw it. I almost yelled out, five-star frog splash! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I, I just legit can barely control myself. The, um... But, it's... like I, 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 Do I know why? No, I, I couldn't tell you why. Um, and by that I mean, I can't tell you why this party takes up the entirety of Act 3. I can't tell you... I can't tell you why um, there's a, there's a scene where like a family shows up for the party and then they find out it's like a weird, creepy pseudo fuck party. And like, they try to leave, but like the homeless actor security stops them because Milo said no one can leave. Like, Oh no, he wants to take their names down because Milo wants a list of all the people who chose to didn't who chose to not come to his party. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my fucking god! Ah, uh, you see what like like straight up cartoon super villainy shit. Like I, the um. So of course uh, Henry shows up to the party in a Zorro costume. Which ends up being like it's like a cape and a hat, like along with his white mask, which you know, whatever, everyone's in masks. So, like, Henry shows up, Rosie shows up, the police show up. So, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, it's a five star fuck parade. Like, it, you know, everyone's crisscrossing with everyone everywhere. You can't tell who's who. And, you know, uh, 
Henry manages to grab Rosie and like get her into an elevator and tries to tell her like, look, get out of here because shit's about to go down. And Rosie, you know, finally expresses like, you know, she wishes things could have been different. And, you know, she wishes that she could have like, you know, that she and Henry could have been like more than friends. And yeah. Henry, Henry says to this, to, to this, Ugh. to this, to this expression of of humanity and like loss and regret he says if you want a companion get a fucking dog it's just the most caustic fucking response to anybody trying to show you a bit of emotional vulnerability just a bit of humanity and again like it's clear why like henry is trying to get rosie out of the dangerous situation and since this is you know living id plaster mask henry the only way he knows how to do it is through like toxic masculinity (laughs) that's about it the um but it is it is fascinating to see because we've we've gone from so the the scene ends with Rosie saying she's not leaving, you know. Um, uh, Henry dodges the cops, dodges dodges Rosie, manages to find his way over to Milo Styles, who is fucking a lady in a porta potty. Yes, and uh. I, say it, I say it's fascinating because, like, throughout this movie, we're like very few good people, and our protagonist definitely isn't one of them. But he goes from killing from pure impulse to killing for revenge to, you know, deciding not to kill to, you know, killing for, you know, killing for payback or, you know, you know, justice with Jimmy to with with Milo Styles. Milo and, and, and Henry have a little back and forth. Milo completely unaware that it's Henry under his mask. But Henry says, like, you're literally the worst person I can think of. And he manages to convince Milo that, you know, he, along with some of the other actors, have have set up a special treat for him at this Halloween party. And, you know, it's interesting. Before I go any further, I do want to sort of complete the thought. And it's, it's interesting to see Henry have kind of made this. He has very clearly made this movement to, like, you know, he's still a murderer. He's still a killer. He's still like, he's still not a full, healthy human being. But he has made this move to like, no, it is, it is right to kill Milo because Milo makes the world worse. And, you know, if if Milo dies, then the world is better. It's like he finds a purpose in it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like he finds a purpose beyond himself which is still like fucked up and like psychopathic and wrong but it's development like it's it's a movement um and the way he kills him is i fear that dear listeners we have not impressed upon you just how early 2000s this party is Because this party has fireworks and this party has lights and streamers and a DJ. And another thing that this party has is the DJ, who is a uh, white kid with an afro, 
has himself a laser. <laughs> I'm not talking about a laser pointer. He has an honest to God laser gun on a tripod. And he's using it. Again, I promise I'm not making this up. He's using this laser to decapitate hanging gimp suited dummies so that they're decapitated dummy bodies that are full of sparkles and glitter and confetti burst open and rain down on the party goers. Oh. So Henry <laughs> seeing the opportunity for a laser murder and not not passing up a good old fashioned down home laser murder. You never pass one up if you could take it. He knocks out the DJ, actually probably the funniest scene in the movie. And the actors put put Milo in 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 one of the dummy harnesses thinking, oh, it's all for a gag. And Henry uses the laser to shoot Milo in the dick <laughs> with, a, with a laser. And Milo, having received a freshly laser-burned dick, realizes that this is no mere gag and that he is in danger. And you would think that the cops or Rosie... Or 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 any of the other characters, we you know the maybe 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 you know Bobby Hill Van Vader, maybe the members of the Misfits, maybe somebody was going to do something about this. This 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 laser laser burn to the cock uh, goes unanswered, unfortunately, and Henry laser beams Milo through the forehead. <laughs> Just a straight and, shot. And the entire room cheers. <laughs> oh, God. The cacophony of the party disguises what has just happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, now, uh, it, uh, uh, it, it's it's looking like the cops are closing in on on our 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 our, our dear friend. There's a lot of quotes around that, Henry. Yes, <laughs> the heaviest of fucking quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the um, <laughs> uh, but. Through uh, you know, through he and Rosie and a and a clever dropping of his costume, he appears to make it out, and in leaving, the white plaster mask over his face is gone, and he has been restored to to you know human faced Henry. And Rosie trying to express to him, uh, you know, uh saying that you know her mask was blank too manages to intercede between him and the cops and allow Henry to escape and uh 
here's here's where we we get into sort of a, a genuine critique of of this movie because like it feels like the movie is trying to get us to a place where either Henry or Rosie, you know, sort of pay for the crimes or they ride off into the sunset and neither of those happen because like we said before, this is a noir film. It can't really end happily. Like that's just not how the kind of the formats of noir, that's not how noir films go. The, um, uh, instead, do you want to take the last scene here, Wonder Boy? What we what we get instead of resolution to Rosie and Henry, you know, to the to the pair that we've sort of been building the whole film. They do not end up in any sort of tangled situation. They are separate. Henry has vanished, and Rosie is off the hook. Yeah, I mean, you know, Rosie basically you know, says like, it's probably the last time I'm going to see him again. And like Tom Atkins basically is saying, you know, well, we're going to find him. I'm just like, okay, let's go for it. And then we cut to some time later. We don't know how long, but uh, Henry is now still has his face um, and is where he's grown his hair out in um, the most matted, of fucking long-haired uh, white dude that I've seen in a while uh, and is working as the mailroom boy at an office where he's delivering uh, mail to various workers and then uh, drives this cart by a boardroom or a conference room, rather, where clearly one of the bosses is just reaming people, just cursing people out and demeaning them in the same way that Milo would demean people. And he just... Henry just can't help but but gawk and just kind of look at this and, you know, just kind of take it in. And the dude turns his focus to him and starts berating him. And as he's goes to walk away and just kind of leave the situation as is, dude just won't let it go. And Henry, like he says, like, hey, I'm talking to you. And Henry's like turns around from his mail cart and all of a sudden there's that white face again. And then we cut to black. So Henry is able to sort of wield this aspect of himself, apparently. Um, you know, for you know what he sees as justice. You know what? What he sees is, you know the the good fight, and it's you could get to the end of Bruiser and say, well, that was unfulfilling, and what I think I would say is that no one that this was a story about identity and identity lost 
and nobody promised that the identity that was going to be found was going to be a good guy or you know what we would consider a moral or ethical guy yeah um that might be beyond i i say might be it's it's pretty clear from the film like it's beyond henry's ability to create a persona that can be self-assured without also being partially monstrous and the 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 sort of epilogue of the film suggests that he has found a balance that he is able to sort of you know pull out this this monster at will but it still casts him as judge jury and executioner i i'll argue that it's not necessarily that he's found a balance but more so that like you said before he's been able to find a way to control and manipulate it to bring it out when he wants to and you know what truly sets him to want to right like we see this one example but is that same impulse kill that we saw at the very beginning with someone who just stole something from him is that mm-hmm. somebody that's worthy of that like he right. can't he can't exist outside of these extremes still like he's either the no name mail mail clerk boy, mailroom boy, that's the term. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. he's the the vigilante here to correct every boss that reams out their employee by right. shooting them in the fucking head. Right. And it's like there's uh you would say you had mentioned before that that this that towards the end you know and taking this epilogue into account this reminded you of bray wyatt's fiend character is that correct yes in some ways it does because i mean obviously the obvious parallel one is like mask and mask yeah you know but the fiend like this is brought up in in the match itself whenever he's talking to Cena. Like he says, like you know, after that loss, it took me six years to put myself back together, and to do that, I had to go to an incredibly dark place within myself and find this other thing within me, the fiend. You know, he basically puts the blame on Cena for having become this thing that he can control in the same way that that Henry can. Um, but I would say that the extremes that Bray sways between, they are not as far as what you see with Henry. Bray can still show compassion. Bray can still like speak to a humanity within himself, an emotional intelligence within himself, and see humanity in others. In this sort of thing, at this point, like it feels like the only source of like interpretation of humanity that Henry has at the end of this film is a transactional one where you treat him well, you get, you know, plain face Henry, you treat him bad, you get white face Henry. Mm-hmm. And that, and those are the only two, that's the only two ways that he can like see the world. And it's, such a devastating place for someone to end up 
especially whenever you see him, he is so happy to turn that white face back on. Yeah, he, so I don't know, I don't know if he's happy to, I don't, like, it does seem, the thing that, like, first seems to, like, like, he sees other people getting yelled at, and he is, he's clearly not happy about it, he is not impressed by it, he is, you know, he's not about it, but he tries to, like, move on and let it go, the, um, but when it gets focused on him, he can't, he just can't move past it, right? The um yeah there there might not be a full control there, like it might just be that like it's you know he can it's as close as he can get to control. The um, whereas like and yes that does that contrast with um you know with um you know you you mentioned that um Bray was sort of more in control of the fiend um. Although, like, it does seem like, you know, just from the the little I have seen, that you can make the argument with Bray Wyatt that The Fiend is basically letting Bray think he's in charge while still getting exactly what he wants out of everything. In some ways, yes. I would say. Because I think um, there's still an element of that being in control that is inherent to just Bray himself. Mm -hmm. Because the Fiend only shows up at the very end of the match the entire rest of the time. Like Bray is in control of this environment without having to embrace that part of him. It's not until Cena like basically flips to his dark side and starts attacking him and actually landing blows that the fiend emerges it's like you embraced your hate your hateful side your violent side now it's time for you to see mine the um <coughs> i uh i am glad that that we kind that we chose uh bruiser and because it's it's a it is a phenomenal and interesting movie from a phenomenal and interesting director but uh it's not perfect no no movie is no movie is um and i think because i think i do think I think that one of the reasons why Bruiser stood out to us is because Bruiser in many ways is the is the noir horror expression of that that sort of explosion of toxic male entitlement and that and the the sort of the culmination of you know, a, a emotional repression that, you know, that goes kind of part and parcel with a lot of the, the be a man stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think the reason that resonated so much with us in choosing it this week, this month was because of just how much like 
Bray Wyatt and John Cena have to deal with that kind of shit as well. Like the wrestling world, like sports entertainment is is, is just shock a block with with a lot of pretty toxic behavioral and mental and you know health and social assumptions mm-hmm. and you know i think that at the end of the day you know bruiser does a very good job of being a cautionary tale about what happens if you don't ever put that fire out and you just let it burn you down i think you're 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 spot on in that um and i think a, a good kind of period to put on on that point really for for me is going back to you know bray or, or Wyndham himself and what he created through bray and, and where some of that came from because you know he's spoken in interviews about um uh you know living with you know some kind of of mental health thing going on he's never he never divulged what what it was but he also like looked at like being able to craft these the character of Bray Wyatt the character of the fiend and, and all the characters that are associated with the greater like Firefly Funhouse and Bray Wyatt kind of oeuvre so to speak mm-hmm. um as a as a way of like working through those things and telling a story with them and being able to like express himself and the things that that run through his mind through that and to turn that into art mm-hmm. um an art that resonated with so fucking many people and and it's one of the reasons why he set himself apart from everyone else why he was so unique and so different and that is really what in the end defined him mm-hmm. in terms of a performer was that ability to be something completely different from everything else i i can't think of a better way to put it the um i uh <laughs> uh i don't know if there is anything that that I that you know I could say more on that uh that I haven't already said. Um I appreciate you sharing uh the the Firefly Funhouse match with me and how much uh, you know it's seeing it and like and looking through some of very wide stuff. I've been able to reach out to a few friends who were were more uh, and who are more into wrestling currently than I am. And you let them know like, Hey, you know, I just wanted to let you know, I watched, uh, I watched some matches and it was amazing stuff. And, you know, I could see, I, you know, I could see the talent bleeding through and you know, I, I wanted to let you know, I was thinking about you and they, they, they appreciated it. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, we chose bruiser 
uh, because of, you know, concepts of identity. And, you know, that was clearly on Bray Wyatt and John Cena's minds. And um, I, you know, I, I, I just like to say here, you know, at the end that no matter the persona, uh, the interpretation, uh, you know, in, in his continuity, in his repertoire, um, the uh, one of one of the one of the unchanging factors was uh, was his talent and his and it clearly his his love for the the medium and the genre. And uh, from what I could tell from the fans, his his absolute love of of the people who 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 loved wrestling right along with him. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you coming down this path with me, friend. No, <laughs> I, I appreciate you walking with uh walking it with me. And uh to everyone listening, we we appreciate you coming along too. Uh and uh we would very much like to let you know that um uh it's it's been a hard uh, couple shows. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, we decided, or we we think that it is it is in, entirely uh, appropriate that October's show is going to be a slap happy silly fest spooktacular. Um, it is going to be fucking fun on a bun, like yeah, it is going to be <laughs> it is going to be a cotton candy candy corn carnival is what it's going to fucking be oh like, i'm i'm down for i'm down for a cotton candy candy corn carnival a lot of people shit on candy corn like i don't know when it got popular to do that but i like candy corn same like you only need to fuck off it's like the same like, i've been hearing some anti tootsie roll propaganda recently who the I fuck sh- said that I, yeah i shut that shit fucking down like absolutely tootsie rolls are like the bedrock of a full ass candy pumpkin. Like I have never seen a trick or treat pumpkin that wasn't at least like 7% Tootsie roll by volume. It is not Halloween. If I don't get a fucking regular Tootsie roll and a vanilla Tootsie roll. Oh oh, yeah. Oh, the vanilla Tootsie rolls. Now me, I I love the, I love those uh, fruit Tootsie, like the orange Tootsie roll and the cherry Tootsie roll and the lime Tootsie roll. Oh, the lime Tootsie roll. I I would straight up trade like Snicker bars for those. Like, because I wanted those. Um, the um, I, I make I, I can make out like a bandit, uh, like back in the day. I, I'd have him till like New Year's. The, um, <laughs> but we, 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 for everyone listening, we appreciate the shit out of you. We appreciate the shit out of you supporting, uh, this show, supporting LGBT media, LGBT reporting, and LGBT wrestling, like, and. Because you have, you have, you've walked this, you know, this path of loss with us these past couple months. I can't think of anything better than to to get with with my comrade Wonder Boy, and uh, we are gonna pick a spooktacular fun ass match. I think we already know what it's gonna be. Although I'm gonna leave it to Wonder Boy to reveal at a later time. Fuck it, we're gonna reveal it now. We're watching fucking Chamber of Horrors next month, Fuck, y'all. Yes, we're going back to fucking Chattanooga, nineteen ninety. 
brought Chamber to you by Charlie Brown from out of town. <laughs> right. <laughs> brought to you by the Midnight Ride. <laughs> so yes, come back in October. We will be talking about the Chamber of Horrors and a, a movie that uh, is on at equal least, footing. Yeah, at least equal to Chamber of Horrors. With the Chamber yeah. of Horrors. <laughs> yeah, with its ridiculous, fun spookosity. <laughs> God. Un- until uh, then, it's been great talking at you, and it's been great talking with you, Wonder Boy. Likewise, likewise. Before we go, I just want to say a couple of thank yous real quick. Thank you to Irving West for designing our required reading logo. Thank you to Reverend Rabies for our theme song on this show, and thank you to you, Hollis, for coming back every month and uh, always. and chatting on this show with me. I can't it's wait every fun. time. Yes, so add two more to the syllabus. We will see y'all next month. Until then, follow the buzzards. Mm-hmm.